Cherry Hill Volvo, we have absolutely incredible offers and a plethora of both new and certified Volvos from which to choose. We are eager to offer amazingly competitive prices, plus an additional $1,000 Costco discount on all new Cherry Hill Volvos. When leasing or purchasing a new or certified Cherry Hill Volvo, you become a valued part of our team. Join Cherry Hill Volvo for the pricing and attention you deserve. I am Judith Krepnick, president of Cherry Hill Volvo. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Uh, Star Wars is going to suck. So the new woman who's uh, directing this movie now, I sent you this clip, Matt. I guess now, and and hats up to Johnny Cook for sending this my way. So she's a big feminist, and she's a WEF person, and she has a goal here with this with this new movie that she's putting out here. The new director of the Star Wars films, Disney has named her, I guess she said, it's time for there to be a girl-centric movie in a galaxy far far away or i don't know something something nonsensical like that anyway this is a little bit about what she said about what she wants to do for star wars take a listen what is the balance of activating a force for change but also trying to permeate that patriarchy that power structure and is that a part of the calculation of your art as well and and what's been the reaction to that Oh, absolutely. Um, I like to make men uncomfortable. I enjoy (laughs) making men uncomfortable. Not you, just just not you. Not know, you. Not not you. Not point you. taken. Point taken. <laughs> but um, you know, it is important to be able to look into the eyes of a man and say, "I am here," and recognize that, and recognize that I am working to bring something that makes you uncomfortable, and it should make you uncomfortable because you need to change your attitude. And it's only when you are uncomfortable, when you are shifty, when you have to have difficult conversations that you will perhaps look at yourself in the mirror and not like the reflection and then say maybe there is something wrong with the way I think or maybe there is something wrong with the way I am addressing this issue. So all you guys out there like Star Wars and have spent a lot of money on, on, on the movies and on toys and whatnot, you're the problem, and now it's your time to uh, be punished for your thoughts and your views. Again, this is the classic example of uh, let, us, let us hate our audience and let us try to shame our audience and then wonder why we are not making any money. It's an incredible business strategy. It really is. This is this is Bud Light all over again. Bud Light said we have to change the culture. We have to change who our audience is from the the frat the fratty white males or whatever the hell she said. And then they lose all this money. They're like, I don't understand. How do we lose all this money? Why? Maybe you should just stop attacking the people that pay your salary. I'm just, I'm just throwing this out there. Imagine if I came on the air every day and crapped on the Zeoli army for four hours. <laughs> How long? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> how, how long would this would the show last? 
<laughs> like we wouldn't get emails, uh, you know, telling us that our ratings are are, are good. It would probably yeah. go the opposite direction, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, we just got an amazing uh, fall book ratings email, and I guess I guess the question. It would be if I just I took that email and I went, all right, well, listen, so we're up 100 and what was it, like 150 percent with women. All right, ladies, it's time we had a heart to heart. You got to take a good look at the beer and change your ways. All right. You broads have been given way too many rights and privileges. And in my opinion, you don't even know how to drive. <laughs> Like I wouldn't let you know what I'm saying. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to. I'm not going to hurt my own audience, and I'm not going to say things like. And in my opinion, passing the whole right to vote amendment was a huge, huge. Whoop! Whoops! We could redo that one moment. You know what I mean? Like that would just be not a smart business strategy. Damn it! We love the 19th Amendment on the Rich Zioli show. Yeah, if I were to come out here and say that I, I would, I would choose the 16th Amendment over the 19th Amendment if I had to make a choice. I would choose income tax over women voting. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't be up 150 percent in the uh, coveted female demographic. <laughs> yeah, I'm just pointing that out. And let's see. And among men, we got the men. The men love us. We're up 91 percent. We're in the top 10 with men. We're in. We're in the top five with men ages 18 to 34, and top 10 with men ages 35 to 64. All right. So let, what if I came on the air every day? And so men, 1834, were in the top five in the entire city of Philadelphia. I came on the air every day and I was like, guys, you need to eat more soy, be more feminine, and cut off your family jewels. And just become and do whatever your wife tells you and be a beta male. And you're tired of your toxic, toxic masculinity and turn off the sports and, you know, suck it up and go do the dishes. Go do the dishes, you lazy butt. I, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, that, because that's basically what they're doing all the time, Disney and Bud Light. Just coming on and, and crapping all over their audience. <laughs> I mean, you'd think they'd learn after how much money they've been losing. Yeah, I mean, if you if, if here's a, here's a good metric for if it works. Are you losing money? Yes, then it's not working. Then your strategy of attacking your audience is not working. Maybe embrace your audience and thank them for giving you their time and money and say thank you every now and then instead of oh, my job is to make men uncomfortable. I want to make you hate this movie and sit there for 3 hours and be punished and understand how terrible you are for being a man. <laughs> She seems like she's probably a pretty good director in fairness, but I don't know what qualifies her to be a director of the Star Wars films. She has two Academy Awards, but they're documenting um, the judicial uh, system in Pakistan. That doesn't seem even, I don't know, tangentially related to Star Wars, right? No, not at all. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. Is why can't you get a director who actually a doesn't hate men and b wants to make movies that people will actually like and maybe knows something about that genre? If if you're telling me she's in this this artistic documentary genre, this movie's gonna gonna suck even more than the last three did. I will say there is one thing that gives me hope. Her two Oscars are for short films. And these previous three Star Wars movies are like three hours long. I, I don't need any more three-hour Star Wars movies. Let's shorten those things. Yeah, I, I, well, no question about it. Here's, my, here, here's actually the honest question I have. Since the original three movies that came out, I think everybody agrees the best Star Wars movie that has been made since the original three was Rogue One. Very good. Mm-hmm. I like that one. 
That director is a guy named Gareth Edwards. He's an English filmmaker. Why don't they just get him to do the others? I, people loved Rogue One. It made them a lot of money. It was a very good movie. It was very. It was. It was very much. It was. It, it's a. It's actually the prequel to Star Wars. It's. It, it. It. The movie ends with Princess Leia getting the plans to destroy the the the, the Death Star. Spoiler. So it was a prequel to that. Spoiler alert! Right. It's like five years old now. Well, yeah, I know it's older than that. I think, isn't it? Yeah, uh, twenty sixteen. Oh wow. So then. So then. You have this guy, he makes a good movie, and people liked it, and the Star Wars fans liked it, and it made money for them. Why not just turn around and say, you you take it from here? Why do they have to turn around and get a woke World Economic Forum feminist to take it over from here? I don't, I don't understand that. I don't get that. That is a good point. I mean, all I think all of them have been bad, honestly. Aside from Rogue One, which is the only one that I can remember enjoying, um, the the latest three were bad. The Han Solo movie was bad. I, I can't remember a good Star Wars movie other than Rogue no, One. I didn't even watch the ninth one. I I, I, I hated the eighth, I hated the eighth one so bad. I was like, this this is over for well, me. Adam Driver said that they basically changed the ending of the ninth film. He was originally supposed to be just like a hardcore villain throughout that new series, and then midway through the production of the the film trio, they they changed things on him, which uh, that seems to me that was going to be problematic. And well, it's because it they had was they went who would they go? They went from. Adam Driver to who was the second director or not Adam Driver J.J. Uh, Abrams to that second director and then back to J.J. Abrams and it pretty much they just undid each other's work throughout the movies yeah that's always a mess when they do that yeah they whatever they established in seven they undid in eight and whatever they did in eight they unestablished in nine so none of it just made any none of it made any sense uh, it makes sense that his character arc was changed Rogue One made a billion dollars. A billion dollars was what that movie made. And it was directed by a man. That's the problem, right? Even though this guy delivered a movie that made them $1 billion worldwide and Star Wars fans actually liked it, the problem is, let's call it what it is, he has a penis. And so they can't. So for that reason, Disney turns around and goes, "Well, you even though you achieved something, you made a billion, you, a billion dollar profit for for us with this movie. Star Wars fans were happy for once, and they liked it. But if you can sh- cut off your schwanz and you can maybe identify as a feminist World Economic Forum lady, maybe we'll give you the director's chair again. Like, well, like what more does this guy have to do to get the, to get the nod and go, hey, what, what do for the for the franchise what you did for." For Rogue One, right? You think it'd be I, that simple? I don't. I don't know. I'll give you guys an, an analogy from just this show that we all work on together. In my absence, we have Michael Pelka and Matt Rooney, and both of them did an outstanding job. Did they not? Yes, they were excellent. Mm-hmm. Excellent job. They they kept the reins of the ship together. They didn't. Now, what if on one day I was off? Greg Stocker decided to put in. A World Economic Forum anti-man feminist to, to, to the show for four hours <laughs> because Gary Arnell was unavailable. I'm just kidding, Arnell. I love you. <laughs> that that would that would uh, you know what I'm saying like it, people be like, why I hate you? Why are you doing this to us? Why are you punishing us? This isn't fair. So 
that's what I don't understand. I just don't understand this mindset where they say we're going to to channel something and try to reach an audience that isn't interested in the product. It's like Bud Light. But the, the people that Bud Light started targeting with Dylan Mulvaney were, weren't interested in drinking Bud Light. So all you did was turn off the people that actually like the beer. Same thing with Star Wars. The people that like Star Wars are not going to be interested in watching, you know, whatever this woman creates. And then she's trying to branch out to get a new audience. And that audience is not going to be interested in Star Wars. They're going to wind up walking all this back like they're doing with Snow White. That Snow White woman came out, the actress who's playing her, and started off by saying, yes, right. And she started off by saying, the original movie is outdated and it's 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 racist and sexist and homophobic and blah blah. blah. We're not going to have any elves or, or dwarfs, whatever the hell they are. And then and now they're trying to walk it back because they know it's going to be a freaking disaster for them. That is it. There's a, there was a there was an article. Um, Rogue One made a billion dollars and Solo was a flop. Solo lost money. Wasn't didn't they make Han Solo in that movie like bisexual or something like that? <laughs> I don't, no, I don't think so. I think they did actually. No, Han I think they Solo? alluded to the. F- I, I'm pretty sure. I in, in, can't remember anything that happened in that movie. To be honest, with you. I, I never on saw. Tr- They're on like a train at one point, I believe. I, I think that sounds familiar. Buzz Lightyear, I know, had uh, the, that mo- most recent Buzz Lightyear movie. I remember that had two lesbian characters, but I yeah. don't remember Han Solo uh, being bisexual. Well, maybe it was Lando. Lando was bisexual and solo. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was Lando. <laughs> it could be. I don't remember it, though. And that that may have been. There was a story. Is Lando bisexual and solo a Star Wars story or just a big flirt? Uh, the latest TV spot for Solo calls Lando Calrissian out for flirting with young Han Solo. So <laughs> they want to, I guess. See, I mean, like, I, I guess this, is it necessary to make, you know, I, is this, do we need this? <laughs> Does anybody need this? Did anyone ask for this? <laughs> the movie becomes a friggin' flop. I can't believe that's a real thing. No, is there, I, I got the article here from movieweb.com. In The Empire Strikes Back, Lando Calrissian is constantly, <laughs> constantly flirting with Princess Leia, so the whole flirting situation isn't all too surprising. However, there really are no signs of the character flirting with men in that movie or in Return of the Jedi, which makes the new Solo interesting because young Lando may be, because he's flirting with dudes in the movie. <laughs> That's interesting. No, no, I again, I just I, like nobody needed this, nobody asked for this, nobody wanted it. They, it was unnecessary. The movie's a flop. I'll tell you the other reason why Buzz Lightyear flopped, and it wasn't even because of, of that of that lesbian kiss, which was, it lasted for like two seconds. It was because Tim Allen played that part of Buzz Lightyear for years, and they made, they made four Toy Story movies, and he was great in it, and he's Buzz Lightyear. Even Tom Hanks who some people wonder is going to be on the Epstein list. I'm not speculating he is. I'm simply just saying people are wondering that. Even Tom Hanks at the time called out Disney, why would you drop Tim Allen? And the reason why they dropped him was because Tim Allen is a conservative. He supported Trump, and he was out there making jokes they didn't like. Like One of Tim Allen's jokes was, if you're pansexual, does that mean you're attracted to frying pans? Which is a very good question. And Disney was like, all right, you're out. You're done. You know what I mean? So then they, they, they put in Chris Evans, who's a great, who was a great actor as Captain America, but he's not Buzz Lightyear. So now you've completely changed it. 
and then people don't like it and then their excuse was well this this is the movie about the the real buzz lightyear that set the toy buzz lightyear up and nobody believed that for a second everybody just believed you just canceled tim allen and that's why i think it flopped i think if you had had tim allen in there it would have been fine because because he's buzz lightyear but they 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 did not want to admit they canceled him but they did mm-hmm. 100% they did i also think that a bigger issue is that movie stunk and the star wars yes. movies all stink too yes I, it, I agree they're not good no i think that you're you're right i think they're prioritizing um messaging social messaging to their audience and not prioritizing just making a good film like I, I, we always um uh, talk about boycotts uh, and how the left is fond of them. I wouldn't say I'm boycotting Disney. I just have no interest in their products. I don't right. watch any of their films anymore because I know that I'm not going to enjoy them when I yeah. sit down to watch them. It has nothing to do with whether or not, you know, Lightyear has two lesbian characters in the film. I couldn't care less. Um, but make a good movie. I, they're prioritizing all the wrong things. And I'm sure these Star Wars movies, the next set, they're, they're going to stink too. And I have no interest in seeing them. Yeah. Because they put the, they're more excited about the fact that they have a quick kiss between two women than they are about the movie itself and the story itself, and therein lies the problem. It's what you just said. They prioritize the wrong things. Instead of prioritizing making a good movie and a good story and, and all the other things, they prioritize the wrong things. They prioritize the social justice stuff that no one gives a damn about. Like I'm sure they sat around in, in the solo meetings and they were like, we got to make Lando flirty with dudes and people are like what why like, what why don't you work on making the script better like, why don't you make why don't you work on making the movie better first but they because it's again it's their priorities are all off and this new director saying that her ambition is to make men uncomfortable it's yes. a star wars movie i'm not watching it to be uncomfortable i want like a two-hour escape from my day-to-day life i want to see some cool explosions in outer space and beyond that i i, I just want the entertainment value i, I don't need social messaging in yeah. in my uh like, in my films there's so many star wars like comics and books out there there's so much material to pull from and they'll do it at like a base level, but yeah, then it comes back to just messaging and stuff. Yeah, or whatever the higher ups in you know uh, the the production company want. Sometimes it's out of the director's hands. Sometimes it's out of the actor's hands. Then they tried to blame Captain Marvel, which uh, the new Captain Marvel movie, The Marvels, which stunk and was a huge bomb. I didn't see it. It was a huge bomb. I have no interest in seeing it. And they blamed that on the fact that. They didn't have enough of the executives involved in the day-to-day. But Disney's whole point was, we have a female director directing this all-girl power Marvel movie. And at some point, maybe you recognize that maybe the, the, the core, your core audience who wants to go see superhero movies are guys. Like, the same thing with the core audience of people that want to go see Star Wars movies are guys. I have to convince my wife to watch a Star Wars movie. I've got to gotta convince her to watch a, a Marvel movie, and she winds up falling asleep. <laughs> so why don't you try to make something your core audience is going to like instead of going, hey, core audience, you suck. We're going to make the next two and a half hours of your life miserable. <laughs> it's a very odd marketing strategy. My buddy Frank just said, Rogue One is Saving Private Ryan for Star Wars fans. I assume that's a compliment. Because Saving Private Ryan was a very, very good movie. I, guess, I, think, I think I assume that's a compliment. I think it, it means he likes it. Uh, Saving Private Ryan pretty much regarded universally as a top ten film all time. 
Yeah, great, 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 great movie, right? So I don't know. I mean, Disney's just a, it's a, it's a freaking disaster. I haven't I haven't liked any of the new Marvel stuff they put out it's ever since they when Avengers Endgame ended and then they started all the new stuff. It's all been terrible. I, people don't like their stuff. There's a problem here. They 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 won't address the problem because they still put too much emphasis on social justice. This new director said what she said was it's and I'll quote you here if I can pull up this stupid article. She said it's time. We're in 2024 now, and I think it's about time that we had a woman come forward to shape the story in a galaxy far, far away. I'm sorry, but was Princess Leia not a central character to the entire Star Wars, uh, the original three movies? You're saying like Princess Leia was the reason why we she was a huge part of it. Guys loved her, particularly when she was with Jabba the Hutt, just saying. And she was she was great. And she was one of the in the 1970s, one of the leading female characters. But it wasn't like she offended men. And what? So now we have to act. We have to pretend as if what all the Star Wars movies that went before were sexist or something like that, I guess, I guess is what we have to do. And now we have to have a woman come forward to shape the story in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> this is what we need. I, I, I hate these people. I really do. I hate them. <laughs> I hate them so much. Because to your point, DeSantis, I just want an escape for a couple hours. Life is tough enough. I have enough. I've got enough pressure. I don't need to sit there for three hours and hate myself any more than I do. <laughs> when do they just fire Kathleen Kennedy? Oh, she's been. She, OK, so Kathleen Kennedy is the woman who has been running the Star Wars end of Disney for several years now. And it's been it's been terrible, right? I mean, if you look at basically every movie that she's associated with, it's just uh, disa- one disaster after another. As of recently, she stinks. Yeah, she stinks. Well, I guess I, I guess I don't know. Maybe Disney. Maybe Disney's actually become a like a shell company. Like, you know, you see those bad Chinese restaurants and strip malls. You go, how the hell did they survive? No, they're fronts for something else. Maybe Star Wars and Marvel have become fronts for money laundering for Disney or something. <laughs> and they just want to take a loss. I have no idea. This is the only explanation. I mean, the company as a whole, I'm sure, is still profitable thanks to the theme parks and uh, you know toy sales. But eventually, if you just keep cranking out dud after dud after dud, they are going to pay the price financially. And even a company as big and as uh, and as beloved as Disney has been is going to, I would imagine, you know, start to suffer big time financial losses, not just in their film industry. Well, but don't forget the parent company is very successful. ABC. China. They own ABC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it's it's ABC Disney China yeah. is the corporate name, <laughs> is the official corporate name. So, the parent company of China is doing quite well. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app, the biggest sports radio stations in the country, providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams, all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives, streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. You're listening to the best of the Rich Zioli Show on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. The Biden administration sues Texas as the United States Speaker of the House visits the border, along with some local members of Congress. And it was Prince Andrew, not Harry. Thank you to my friend Don Stensler, my dear friend, for correcting me, reminding me it was Prince Andrew, 
not Harry. With the Epstein allegations. Yes, thank you, Dawn. 855-839-1210 on Twitter, at Rich Zioli. It's why I need her here. Thank God she's listening. But now let's turn our attention to uh, Joe Biden's problems with Hispanics, shall we? And uh, to talk about that, let's welcome to the show Wadi Gaitan. He is communications director for the Libre Initiative. Uh, Wadi, thank you for joining me here in Philadelphia. I appreciate it. How are you doing? It's great to be on. Thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm on your website, the Libre Initiative, right on the uh, main page there. Hispanics aren't buying Bidenomics. So before we get into all that, tell me about the Libre Initiative. Who, Who are you guys and what do you do? Yeah, the Libre Initiative, we're across the country, including Pennsylvania. Uh, we believe, honestly, that when it comes down to the future of our country, when it comes to the future of our community, we need policies that advance pro-freedom, that empower individuals, and don't focus on putting power just in Washington, D.C., and in politicians. So what we do is we work with the community, make sure they're up to date with all of the policies going through Congress, and making sure that they're involved in the process and advocating uh, for those pro-freedom uh, policy. So uh, the topic of Bidenomics and the topic of the economy in general, immigration, health care is one that we follow very closely. And we're always engaging Latinos on the topic. So tell me why you think it is that that now Biden is trailing Trump among Hispanic voters. Uh, well, I think it's, it's a two part answer to that. Well, one is that uh, when the presidency started, uh, Joe Biden and the White House really came out with policies, like I mentioned earlier, Uh, that focused on growing Washington. What do I mean by that? I mean, they focused on creating regulations uh, that they believed were actually good if if people in D.C. could decide uh, how businesses, small and large, uh, can do what they do best, which is grow the economy and really employ Americans. But by creating these regulations that come out of D.C., they're really just creating barriers uh, for all Americans who are trying to build their business, create their business, expand their business. Uh, same thing when it comes to healthcare policies, creating regulations uh, that stifle uh, innovation, that create barriers for people to be able to pick uh, who they believe is their best doctor or their best uh, service that they want to receive. Uh, so the problem was that these policies didn't allow the economy to grow at the pace that it should. The second mistake they did is when they launched this campaign around Bidenomics. They really wanted to uh, essentially take a victory lap and highlight what they believe had gone well, but it really fell flat. Uh, they, they talked about prosperity. They talked about opportunity, but they talked about it to a community who was still facing inflation, people who still want to buy that first home, people who want to save for the college of their kids, people who just want to be able to have extra income and be able to take that vacation. Uh, and it fell flat with these individuals who are still looking for their leaders to talk about how we can actually increase opportunity, increase uh, growth. And I think for these two main reasons, Joe Biden and Democrats are losing support among Latinos and among all Americans. I love it. I love everything you just said there. And I love I love, too, that you talk about opportunity. Like, for example, I mean, K through 12, educational freedom, something that Joe Biden does not support. He does not support educational freedom or opportunity, school choice. No way. No how. And, and, and that's key for all communities. I mean, we really believe, and, and I'll speak specifically for a second on the Latino community. Many of us are the grandchildren or children of, of immigrants, people who came to this country uh, to work. And we believe that education is part of that economic ladder. But when we're not allowing parents, who knows best than parents, 
to decide where kids where their kids should go or how to best uh, leverage the opportunities that exist um, out there if it's education savings accounts in some states if it's charter schools uh, if it's not being limited to one's uh, zip code with open enrollment I mean these are opportunities that parents want to take a hold of but when you don't have that support uh, you know from Democrats and from the White House you're limiting something as essential as education to be leveraged to its highest potential Biden is now trailing among Hispanic voters by five percentage points, 39 percent to 34 percent, according to the new poll that came out just recently. USA Today poll. Uh, it's a very credible poll. How much do you think the, the 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 question of the border and border security or the lack thereof, the open border that we're dealing with right now? How much is that playing into the thinking of Hispanic voters? I think it's a key element. I mean, I, I believe that Democrats have lost credibility among Latinos when it comes to this topic. For many years, one of the issues that really attracted Hispanics to Democrats is that Democrats would promise on immigration. They would say, we're going we're gonna to tackle immigration reform from top to bottom, but they never did. And they always came back and said, well, it was Republicans' fault. You know, we didn't get it done because of Republicans. The Latinos are tired of hearing those excuses and no longer believe Democrats on this issue. And now you look at what's going on at our southern border, uh, where there's complete chaos. Uh, It's a crisis. Latinos also came to this country because of rule of law. And we understand that it's important to know who comes in and out of our country. We also understand that there needs to be resources uh, for Border Patrol. We've, I had the chance last year to visit the border twice uh, with the Libre Initiative. Many of the people working along the border are Hispanics. They're seeing firsthand, and they're talking to their family members here. And you've also seen a shift, even within Hispanic media, on the coverage of what's going on in the border. And at the end of the day, that falls on this administration. Their lack of messaging on this topic, and then their lack of action and their lack of working with Republicans to get to a solution to make sure that the crisis that we're seeing now is not something that continues to expand. It's something that is alienating Hispanics from the Democrat Party. They're seeing it more as broken promises. I would think that if, if people came here legally, it's got to be particularly frustrating for them to watch this uh, this chaos at the southern border and think to themselves, you know, I had to do it the right way. And now all these people are just coming in and Biden's doing nothing about that. And this is this is a problem. I mean, you you guys address this at the Libre Initiative. You talk about some of the issues that our farmers face, for example, the competition among um, among the labor force. I mean, all these issues, I would think, have to resonate within the the constituency you're talking about. One hundred percent. Yeah. And and, and Latinos, we we've done polling on this and then we're also in the community talking about this topic When, when they talk about. Uh, immigration reform, yes, we recognize the need of visa reform. Our, our, our system within our country is outdated, but that also includes border security. We believe that many people who are coming over is because they're hearing about those job opportunities, many of them in agricultural and construction. Well, the reality is the United States continues to be a place where we're attracting workers, and there is in many industries a need for workers. But what we're saying is, can we do that through our legal system? How can we update our visa system so it's a attracting individuals to come here legally and not attracting to folks to come here uh, unlawfully through illegal channels through the border. So we believe that there does need to be reforms to the entire system. And right now there needs to be an address to the border. I think Republicans have done a way better job at 
providing solutions, putting solutions on the table when it comes to providing uh, resources, also changes to our asylum system, making sure that we have enough judges, because there are individuals who come here unlawfully believing that they're going to be able to enter the country and stay. But in reality, many people who are being apprehended at the border will not be able to qualify for the asylum system, and they're going to be sent back to the country of origin. So Republicans at least are being realistic when they talk about this issue on what are the solutions needed, what are the problems. If Joe Biden wants to have a chance of garnering some support from Latinos, he's going to have to join Republicans on the discussion and bring solutions to the table. Wadi Gaitan is my guest right now. He's communications director for the Libre Initiative, and I highly recommend you check out their website. It is thelibreinitiative.com. You know, as you talk about economic opportunity and freedom, I love the fact that you guys bring up the Democrats' agenda on climate change and all the regulations that are stifling economic opportunity. And yes, stifling economic opportunity for Hispanics as well. That is something that you don't hear about. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we really believe that in order to uh, – look, we were talking about the economy order, uh, earlier. In order to make sure that families feel that they can continue to thrive in this country and be able to save for that future, energy is such a key component of it. I mean, how many stories have we heard of people's energy bill? How much have we heard when we talk about uh, inflation – Uh, at the gas pump. We really believe that in order to get back to a better place, we need an all-of-the-above strategy when it comes to that. That doesn't mean that solar panels are bad. That doesn't mean electric cars are bad. We're we're not against uh, sort of innovation to this space. If anything, we support it. What we're saying is we believe the administration has made the error of really picking winners and losers and, and, and coming after energy that we have currently right now against uh, things that the prior administration uh, elevated. And when it comes to uh, pipelines, when it comes to uh, empowering uh, people to be able to drill in new locations, being able to have access to this energy. So what we're saying at the Libra Initiative is let's tackle this from all of the above. Let's look at new renewable energy. Uh, let's look at innovation in this space, but let's not do what this administration has done is pick winners and losers. And, and not only by, uh, they, they have only not done that by saying, let's create uh, sort of corporate welfare for certain groups, but they've also stopped key projects across the country that this has, in our opinion, really created more of a barrier uh, for families who want access uh, to more energy. And when we talk about the Latino community in areas like Texas, some of the best, highest-paying job when it comes to Latinos is in the energy sector. So not only are you creating it, uh, again, a barrier for access to energy, but you're creating a barrier for good, high-paying jobs in communities where you have hardworking families in this space. Yeah, I, I think you, you said that very, very well. And you, you tied it into where uh, jobs are key, and, that, and that's excellent. You also, you guys do a great job on breaking down inflation and, and why this inflation problem in America is, is happening. As I look at these poll numbers, and I, I think about this from the perspective of, of Hispanic voters now choosing Trump over Biden, uh, Wadi, I think about this, and, 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 and the bottom line is it's still the economy, stupid. The inflation issue is 100% this administration's fault. And you guys laid out very, very well. Washington policies. Congress spends and borrows too much money. The Federal Reserve prints more money to cover the reckless government spending and borrowing. The more money the Fed prints, the less our hard-earned dollars are worth and the more everything costs. And this is killing everybody right now. It's 100% true. I mean, at the reality, every family has to sit down, and this is the old tale that all politicians tell, right? We all have to sit down, put together a budget. 
But the reality is that that's not what Washington does. When they put together their budget, they say, hey, if I have a pet project, we're just going to print more money. The reality is that comes back on us as taxpayers. We all know that when, you know, when we go to work and we see that paycheck every two weeks, that at the end of the day, there is reductions being done via taxes. The more this government spends, the more it prints, the more we add to debt, the more interest we pay on that debt. That's our generation, the next generation that's going to have to uh, really pay into those. And it's hurting all, it's going to hurt all communities across the country, Latinos at a very high rate. Um, at our at our younger uh, working age, 18 to 35, we, we make a, a high percentage per community of those workers. That means it's our tax dollars of Latinos and all Americans who are going to be have to be paying uh, for that debt. We need to get to a place uh, where our members of Congress feel a level of responsibility when it comes to this uh, to this topic, and and, it, and it's very uh, relevant because at the end of January, at the beginning of February, we're going to have to have the discussion around the debt limit again. If you remember, it was a discussion in December. It was really just expanded, uh, or the deadline was moved to the end of January, the beginning of February. And what we believe is not only do they need to be responsible with this debt limit, but they need to put in reforms that keep them accountable when it comes to the budget so they're not governing from crisis to crisis or debt limit or government shutdown to government shutdown. They need to be responsible members of Congress. Let me ask you another question while I have you. As we talk about education, you mentioned you know, Hispanics are, are, are people that, that law and order is very important to them. How much of what's happening in our schools with regards to the curriculum and, you know, the, the, the efforts by the left to really indoctrinate our children, a lot of this stuff around, you know, sex curriculum and transgender policies and all that. How, how much of that is, is affecting, you think, the Hispanic voters, leading them away from Joe Biden and Democrats and towards Trump? Bo, I think I think it has. There's a two two part answer to this question. One, uh, I think Latinos view this topic. Or I know Latinos view this topic. Uh, one through the prism of we were a very pro family, very pro traditional, uh, very pro faith uh, community. Latin America as a whole is a very Catholic and evangelical. Um, uh, just countries that make up the area, and then many Latinos when they come here, it's, it's one thing that. Uh, that it, I think it's it's a pride for our community. So so we view it through that lens as well. Uh, and, and then I think this is a big mistake that the left has done is they've come in and they've tried to op- uh, impose these views and these policies on our community. I think Democrats uh, got a little bit too comfortable with the Latino community. They saw that for many years they were able to compete uh, for many of their votes at a very high rate. And, and they felt that they were at a place where they didn't have to listen to Latinos, but Democrats felt that they now could impose their own uh, sort of woke, left-leaning agenda. And, and they've made that mistake. And I think that's also a big reason why these numbers uh, are reflected in these polls where Biden is losing uh, this uh, support from Latinos. Latinos don't, uh, they, they prefer these traditional values that we've had as a community. And the moment you start imposing this woke agenda in our schools, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, you're going to lose the support uh, of Latinos. It's a big mistake uh, the Democrats have made. Yeah, well said, my friend. Well said. Well, listen, keep up the good work. Great to have you on. We'll have you on again to talk about this as we get closer and closer to the election. It's going to be a big year here in Pennsylvania. I know you guys have a chapter in Pennsylvania as well. Wadi Gaitan, Communications Director for the Libre Initiative. Check out their website at thelibreinitiative.com. Hey, man, thanks for coming on and helping us break down this poll and uh, really making, uh, making us understand exactly how the Latino community is feeling right now. Appreciate it very much.
Most definitely. Thank you for having me on. This is the best of the Rich Cioli Show. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. All right, Harvard's president is out. And, of course, she's blaming racism, not plagiarism, not the fact that they allowed all this anti-Semitic crap to be done on their campuses. Uh, racism. Right. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. I was filling in for Dana Lash earlier today from 12 to 3. So you'll get to hear that tonight at 9 o'clock and we do the replay of that. And then uh, it was a bunch of uh, good stuff over the holiday break. I got to do Levin's show a bunch of times and Dana's show a bunch of times. So it was great. And again, my thanks to Michael Pelka and Matt Rooney for filling in for me. Well, I was taking a few days off because the thing about it is that 2024 is going to be in insane it is it's going to be insane we're about to go down a road of complete nuttery and it's going to start with the united states supreme court having to deal with what colorado and maine have done and it's going to be just be a complete s show from now they're going to do everything they possibly can to stop trump i mean everything you have to realize that they will do everything they can to stop him whatever it takes and if that means they get behind nikki haley so be it you know, if the Democrat Party gets behind Nikki Haley, they can live with Nikki Haley. And they and they just may. You know, they they may decide to themselves. This, this is the scenario that worries me. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. Here's the scenario that worries me. I worry about the Democrat Party realizes Joe Biden's a loser, and they but they're stuck with him. They, they can't get rid of him. You know, they try to, they charge Hunter Biden, and they turn around and they say to the guy, listen, you know, if you don't pardon the guy and get out of the race, he's going to go to prison. He's going to drop a dime on you. And Biden doesn't care. They can't just get rid of him because you have the Kamala Harris problem. And the Democrats are going to scream that you've just replaced the first black woman with some guy like Gavin Newsom and his wonderful, beautiful quaff of hair. They're not going to be happy about that. So what they may do is honestly, they may just turn around and say, all right, we got to stop Trump. You know, he's the problem here. He's the guy that's going to destroy this, the deep state and the swamp. Although I completely think he's, he's wrong on the FBI building, but I'll talk about that later. But they got to stop him. They're going to do whatever it takes to stop him. And so maybe they just decide, well, then we'll just get behind Nikki Haley. I mean, we can live with her. You know, she's, as, long as, she, as long as she's for the war in Ukraine, that's all they care about at this point. I mean, they want power. Don't get me wrong. But they... They'd rather, I think, roll the dice on her being there and working with them than him going in there like a bull in a china shop and then using all of his power as president to get revenge on these people for allowing the deep state to become so toxic that it is able to bring down a sitting president of the United States of America. You know, and so I wonder, I deep down inside, if a lot of these Democrat party brokers and, and masters of the universe, because remember something, these people all really do get along. You know, I, I know, I know if you if you watch the, you listen to political shows and you think to yourself that everybody in the Republican Party and the Democrat Party hate each other. And the reality is, if you go to D.C., you see it with your own eyes. They're all buddies. You know, they they, they publicly, for the cameras, play it all up, but... Where do you think when they're going to the Capitol Grill at night and eating very expensive steak dinners with lobbyists, you watch Mitch McConnell, how he talks about his friend Joe Biden and his friends across the aisle. I mean, these people are all in on it together as long as they just keep getting rich. That's all they care about. Do they really hate each other? No, they're all complete. There are some that do. 
I mean, you have some very principled people there. Don't get me wrong. But that's not who I'm talking about. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about the people that are the, uh, the establishment types that actually run the show. You know, for them, they'll sit there at dinner with their lobbyists and they'll be Democrats and Republicans and they'll be at the same parties together and, and that's hailed as bipartisanship. And actually all it is is just their way to keep the swamp going and to keep enriching themselves and to make sure that when they leave Washington, if they ever leave Washington, they all land on their feet in some big board, corporation, whatever it is. And so they're all in on it together. And if that means that they got to turn around and they got to stop Trump by working together to get a Republican in that they can live with, well, so be it. I think a lot of these same Republicans did that exact same thing to get Joe Biden in. You know, a lot of these Republicans wanted Biden over Trump in 2020. I mean, hell, a lot of them probably wanted Hillary Clinton over Trump in 2016. They just didn't think that he had a chance. But when 2020 came along, I mean, there's no question in my mind that for these Republican masters of the universe, they were helping Biden. You think Mitch McConnell wanted four more years of Trump? No, definitely not. And this is the problem. I mean, it's the problem with our system. It's why we need term limits. It's why we got to throw these bums out. But it's why nothing changes. It's why the swamp keeps perpetuating itself. And it's why the power is so concentrated among a small group of people who seem to just be there forever and ever and ever and ever. You know, COVID's a great example of this, right? COVID's a great example. I heard Karine Jean-Pierre the other day going on about how the Biden economy is great. Everybody just needs to remember that they came out of the worst pandemic in forever and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we're all supposed to pretend like 14 million jobs were created when actually what happened is that it blue states that all locked down, reopened, jobs came back. And pandemic restrictions went away, jobs came back. But now the Biden administration wants you to believe they created all those jobs. So Corrine Jean-Pierre comes out and lies about that and says, we created 14 million new jobs. I know you didn't. And people know that that's BS anyway. They feel that in their paycheck. But COVID's a great example of what I mean, though, in terms of how big pharma and all these other entities, you know, they got rich and they did just fine. And a lot of people in Washington enabled all of that they enabled the behavior and it's a mindset too that government knows better than you and that government will keep you safe so we condition people to believe that i had a conversation yesterday with some friends about skittles yes the candy skittles about how california wants to ban them because they contain a chemical ingredient and so there you go they want to ban them and you know the debate was over the fact of well it's bad for you but you see, this is the problem, though, right? If you condition an entire group of people to believe that government knows better than you, then the minute that something goes wrong or they pretend that something's going wrong, the minute that everybody like sheep will turn around and surrender their freedom and their liberty, whatever precious freedom and liberty they have left. So today it's some ingredient in the food you know, government's going to keep me safe by banning it. And tomorrow it's a pandemic and government's going to keep me safe by mandating I get a vaccine or by mandating that my kids can't go to school or by mandating that I have to, you know, uh, my business is not essential. And you condition people to believe in all this crap. Climate change is another great example. Climate change is another great example where the government tells you what the science is. And when the government is allowed to decide what science is there's no debate anymore you know you lose the ability to debate that's why you had things like covid mandates 
There's no debate. It's you can't debate climate change. You know, you're just called the climate denier and you're shut down. The government doesn't want you to debate. They want you to just do what you're told. And there's a lot of people in Washington who benefit from that because then those people will then go on to make a lot of money. I'll give you a great example. Scott Gottlieb is one of those people. Right. So when he was at the FDA years ago, before Trump became president, uh, he wanted to ban flavored vapes. You know, people vape. A lot of people do this nowadays. People who are smokers do this. I'm not a vapor myself. I'm a cigar guy. That's where I draw the line. But I know people like uh, they've quit smoking and they vape. And so Scott Gottlieb is the FDA administrator. Well, what he wanted to do was ban those flavored vaping products because they were bad for you, you know? And Trump came in and that went away, thank God. That whole plan went away. But Gottlieb wound up being, you know, he's on a board. He's on the board of Pfizer now and he's making all kinds of money and he's, he's, he's doing just fine. You know what I mean? He's doing just fine. The Biden administration right now wants to ban menthol cigarettes. Now, the argument is that menthol cigarettes, they prey on poor black people. And because uh, obviously poor black people can't think for themselves, and make decisions for themselves, the government has to come along and ban a perfectly legal product for their own good. And there are a lot of people that support these things. They support these bans because they've been conditioned to believe that if something is bad for you, the government knows what's best. And so that's why when you turn around one day and go, wait a minute, are you telling me they were actually trying to ban my gas stove? Yes, because your gas stove is bad for you, you see. If you're asthmatic, or you might have a kid who has asthma, or just in general for the air, for the climate, it's bad. So we have to ban it. And we have to ban gas cars too. See, it's a mindset. It's a mentality. You condition people <coughs> excuse me, to believe that this is all for their own good. And then eventually they just turn around and give up their freedom and their liberty, whatever precious freedom and liberty is left. Because they think that somebody there is protecting them. Meanwhile, when you peek behind the curtain, you realize that all these people who are the ones that control all this stuff wind up getting really, really rich. Why is that? You know, why, why, how is it that they keep getting rich and they keep benefiting from this system? And a big part of the reason for that is because somebody is always going to win. If you lose, somebody will win. Here's what I mean by this, right? I ban your gas stoves. That's okay because whoever makes electric stoves will do just fine. If I ban gas cars, well, then the companies that make the, uh, the electric cars, well, they'll, they'll do just fine. And the government will give them all kinds of money to pay for all these very flammable batteries. And they'll put billions of dollars of subsidies to build these battery plants. And they'll take your tax dollars and they'll just use it for that. If I ban menthol cigarettes because I tell everybody it's bad and it's okay, it's all right because they'll switch to other brands and big tobacco will do just fine and big tobacco will find other ways to make money and, and whoever's in Congress or the FDA or the CDC will wind up working for one of these companies as either a lobbyist or an attorney or maybe on the board like how Scott Gottlieb wound up being on the board of Pfizer. It's okay. It's all good. I mean, they're going to do just fine. The government will grow its power over you as an individual. Like a sheep, you'll turn around and believe it's all for your own good. So when they tell you in a few years that you can't eat meat, you'll already be primed for this. You know, because when they said they were going to ban Skittles, you were like, ah, it's a stupid candy. Who cares? 
And this is a bad chemical, so uh, yeah, take it out of the food supply. I'm good with that. And then in a few years, when they turn around and say, you can't eat meat because it's bad for the environment. And it's bad for you. You know, heart disease and blah, blah, blah. And you'll turn around and you'll say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, the research disagrees with that. The research shows that actually if you eat more of a uh, caveman diet or an omnivore or, or you know, whatever the, the fancy term is that the kids are using today for a diet that's high in protein or something, actually, you know, your cholesterol will go down, your blood pressure will go down, you'll be good. But you see, the government won't allow you to debate that. It's like debating a gas stove. You won't be allowed to debating the merits of driving a car that's powered by gasoline. You can't because they've decided the science for you. So when these things turn around and they say to you at some point, well, you, you have to limit your meat consumption or there's going to be a meat tax. I mean, what do they do in Philadelphia with the soda tax, right? They said that soda, which is bad for you, was directly impacting poor people. So a lot of poor people were drinking soda. So Philadelphia said, to deal with that, we're going to create a soda tax. Now, we all know what that is. It's just another way for the government to get money. And it disproportionately affects people that drink soda who happen to be poor in some of these neighborhoods. Other people who have the means will just get in their car and drive someplace else and buy soda where they want to and not pay the stupid sugary drink tax, which is never really about protecting you from soda. It's just another way for the government to get more money. It's like the liquor by the drink tax or whatever else it is. The, I told you years ago, you know, we did a whole campaign back when I was on Afternoons the first time around where I was trying to encourage people to start smoking cigarettes for the children, you know, for the children, because it's, it's what, it, what you see the, the, the tax on cigarettes helps fund the schools. And when Jim Kenney became mayor, he said, we have to raise the price of a pack of cigarettes by a dollar because it's bad for you. And we have to try to get people to stop smoking because it's bad. And I asked the question, why don't you just ban cigarettes? I remember Rush Limbaugh asked that question one time, too. He said, if cigarettes are so bad, why don't they just ban them? But the thing about it is, though, they want the revenue, you see. They need the revenue, and so they'll just keep raising the taxes on a pack of cigarettes. So I actually said at the time, smoke them if you got them for the children. And if you don't smoke, you should start smoking so that you can help fund the schools, Because that's what you need to do if you're a good person. You know, if you're a good person, you should be doing that stuff. And it's like any other tax, right? I mean, any other tax has some some little hidden benefit to help somebody else. You know what I mean? Like there's this great meme today I saw about California. They said, um, here's California, a state that never had slavery. And they're going to take people who never owned slaves. They're going to take their money and give it to people who were never slaves. That's kind of the mindset right there. But the redistributionist aspect of all of this comes from the fact that we have become conditioned to two things. The first one is government will always keep us safe. And the second one is that if something's bad for me, but it's not banned and it's heavily taxed and heavily regulated, that's okay because somebody else will benefit from that. And you got to turn around and say, wait a minute, wait, like, what do you mean? Well, if there's a meat tax, 
you know, if I'm eating a lot of red meat, it's not good for me. So they won't ban it, but they'll tax it. And then they'll use that for climate change and the children and maybe the seniors too will get some of that. And it's okay. I'll, I'll do my part. I'll eat more steak. I'll eat more chicken. But you just said it was bad for me. Yeah, but yeah, but now the taxes will offset that because now you're helping people by paying the meat tax, you know, like the cigarette tax, like the alcohol tax, like the whatever other tax. And you got to just question the logic of all this and go, wait a second. So you'll ban menthol cigarettes, but not all cigarettes. Why not? I mean, if menthol cigarettes are bad, how come? I mean, it's still a cigarette. Why would the others not get banned? And the Biden administration will turn around and say, well, because the menthol cigarettes disproportionately target poor black people. And then a lot of these groups that represent people who are black smokers turn around and go, well, that's racist. I mean, how come we're not allowed to to smoke what we want, but then white people can? I mean, if it's bad, you just ban it. Why don't you just ban cigarettes altogether? The answer is because they need the revenue. They need the money. And nothing that the left does ever makes any sense at all. I mean, there's no logic behind any of this stuff. But there's a mindset where government has to do things for your safety and for your own good. And I think, I really do, I think sometimes they sit around and every now and then have to find something else to ban to remind you that they have the power to do it. Because if they don't do it, you'll forget and maybe someday you'll actually put up a stink about it, you know? It's like when years ago when they tried to ban flavored vaping products... And I remember saying on the show, everybody needs to call the White House and tell President Trump to stop this because a lot of his voters either smoked and now use vapes or they just like freedom and knock it off. And they did. And people called, you know, and they said, stop this ban. The ban went away. There was no basis for banning blueberry vapes or boysenberry vapes or whatever. I mean, it made no sense, right? Vaping would be legal. But flavored vaping would be bad. But I, I, it, there's no logic. It's just that we have to exercise our power and our control all the time. Because when the time comes that we need to ban gas cars and gas stoves and we need to ban meat and make you eat bugs or whatever the hell else they want to do, or we need to keep you in your homes or keep your kids at home or make you take a shot. Not a, I don't mean like a shot of fireball. I mean like a shot of like a, like a COVID shot. You have to do it. You'll do it, you see. It's very similar to what they did after 9-11 when they turned around and they said, for your own good, we're going to read your emails and listen to your phone calls and know everything you're doing because you might be, somebody might be a terrorist and we got to protect you from that. It's the same mindset. It really is. And to prove that point, here's Francis Collins. Francis Collins is the former head of the National Institutes of Health. And he talked about how during COVID, there was massive unnecessary collateral damage that was done. And the reason for this, of course, was because the elites who control everything made all the decisions for us. And this guy is one of the absolute worst because Collins at the time was all in on lockdowns and all in on mandates. And he was all in on these things. So now he has to actually acknowledge you know, a little bit late to the game, right? He has to acknowledge now, you know, that maybe our strategy here had some backlash to it. You know, maybe there's a little bit of backlash. So here's Francis Collins discussing this. Cut 16. As a guy living inside the Beltway, feeling the sense of crisis, trying to decide what to do in some situation room in the White House with people who had data that was incomplete, 
we weren't really thinking about what that would mean uh, to Wilk and his family uh, in Minnesota, uh, a thousand miles away from where the virus was hitting so hard. We weren't really considering the consequences in communities that were not New York City or, or, or some other big city. The public health people, we talked about this earlier, and this is a really important point. If you're a public health person and you're trying to make a decision, you have this very narrow view of what the right decision is, and that is something that will save a life. Doesn't matter what else happens. So you attach infinite value uh, to stopping the disease and saving a life. You attach a zero value to whether this actually totally disrupts people's lives, ruins the economy, and has many kids kept out of school in a way that they never quite require for collateral from. damage. So there, yeah collateral damage this is a public health mindset and i think a lot of us involved in trying to make those recommendations had that mindset and that was really unfortunate that's another mistake we made no really see that's so funny because during that whole thing i was saying all those things like you know the collateral damage you guys are causing to the economy to the kids to the uh to mental health to addiction all those things but they don't want to hear it because you're not allowed to debate them and this is the point you're not allowed to shut up and do what you're told and shut up and listen to the science and sit down and shut up because we're trying to save your life here. Okay. We're trying to save your life. You ungrateful SOB. And they don't have this problem in China. You know, you know, in China, they don't have this problem because people there are good and they do what they're told. Here's Francis Collins going on about how so much better in China. Cut 17. China didn't have a problem with politicians disagreeing with the leadership, <laughs> nor, nor did they have a media problem, but we sure had every possible voice, many of them with all kinds of intentions that were not noble, uh, ready to capitalize on a circumstance where there was uncertainty and resentment and anger and fear and whip that up in the biggest way. Yeah, imagine that. You know, it's just so pesky, that whole freedom thing, isn't it? You know, because here we are trying to save your life, and you have the audacity to disagree with us and tell us that maybe the things that we're doing are going to lead to bad outcomes. So shut up and sit down. Be quiet. We know it's better for you. We know it's best for you, and we're trying to keep you safe. And we know science, and you don't get to disagree with us. Sit down. Be like China. and Sit down and shut up. Here's Francis Collins flashback now singing during the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> from <laughs> By the way, where did you find where did you find I got to ask you, Matt DeSantis, executive producer, where did you find this anyway? Uh, the singing? Yeah. Uh, this, is a, this is classic Francis Collins. I, much like Eric Swalwell, if he's even tangentially uh, featured in the news, I'm going to put him on the show sheet so I can play the infamous clip. Francis Collins, if he's even remotely newsworthy, I'm going to put him on the show sheet so we can play this soundtrack. Oh, good. I like this now. This is good. I don't think I've heard this song in quite some time. So, excellent. We have an excuse now to play <laughs> one of Matt DeSantis' favorite clips of Francis Collins singing Somewhere Past the pandemic <laughs> from november of 2021 as the national institute of health director cut 18 
If I could get the whole CD of all of his hits, <laughs> that would be so appreciated. I would love that. All those other countries are our family, too. You got that? There you go. Uh, my favorite is when it, it, he took the New York, New York, but he made it into um, China, China. So it's all about like how great China is. You know, it's like Beijing, Beijing, you know. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. And all you have to do to make it there is just submit to the will of government and give up your freedom and you'll be fine. So, you know, sit down and shut up. You're listening to the best of the Rich Zioli Show on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Matt Walsh at The Daily Wire wrote a very good piece about this as well. And he said, there are still many more questions and answers. If you go through the nearly 600 pages of documents that were re- released last night, you'll still find a lot of very conspicuous redactions. On page 497, for example, you'll find this question that was posed to Virginia Goofrey. Quote, Ghislaine Maxwell told you to go give a massage to redacted, correct? The name of the person is hidden. Remember, Virginia Goofrey is the victim here. She's the one who was underage. By the same token, on page 502, you'll find this question to Goofrey, quote, other than Glenn Dubin, redacted, Prince Andrew, Jean-Luc Brunel, Bill Richardson, who was the governor of New Mexico, and also one of Clinton's cabinet members, another prince, the large hotel chain owner, and the late MIT professor Marvin Minsky, is there anyone else Ghislaine Maxwell directed you to go have sex with? Once again, there's a name missing from the list in that question. And for some reason, we're still not allowed to know who that is. The name is redacted. Now, as Matt Walsh points out, there could be good reasons for concealing the name. Maybe it's an underage victim of Epstein's. On the other hand, maybe it's someone with a lot of power who's still under the control of the intelligence agencies. We really have no idea. Whatever the case, there are a lot more redactions like this. You can go down, you can download the documents and see for yourself What this means is that several years after Epstein's death, we're still left to fill in the blanks of court documents that were supposed to be made public before Epstein didn't kill himself. We're not entitled to know anything more than we already knew, and we're definitely not allowed to know what exactly 
was on those blackmail CDs that disappeared from Epstein's safe. Most of what appears in the documents released yesterday leaves plenty of plausible deniability for those named. None of it amounts to actual proof of wrongdoing. It all raises more questions than it answers, but there is very good reason to believe that there exists out there somewhere, or did exist at one point, actual physical direct proof that a bunch of powerful people raped children on Epstein's Island or on one of his other properties. But that proof is not being released and nobody has ever been arrested. It's a funny thing, isn't it? Epstein was an international pimp and pedophile, but apparently he had no clients. That's what we're supposed to believe anyway, but we can't believe that because it's nonsense, which means that the truth, the real truth, the full truth is still being kept secret from us. There are secrets, as Alexander Acosta said, that are above our pay grade and they will remain above our pay grade, at least until the people Epstein was blackmailing step out of line. Then we might see the names on those CDs. Then we might learn the identity of all the people named in those binders in his New York townhouse. Otherwise, the feds will continue to stonewall guys like Mike Cernovich and everyone else who's been seeking the truth. That's because more than four years after Jeffrey Epstein's death, he still belongs to the intelligence community. The CIA has a term called limited hangout. This is a tactic where some small portion of the truth is made public, while the most important details, the stuff that really matters, is kept hidden. Intelligence agencies do this in hopes that the stuff they release will satisfy everyone's curiosity and they'll stop asking questions. These Epstein files appear to be exactly that. This is a limited hangout, a diversion meant to satisfy you without actually telling you what you need to know. They want you to stop asking questions. Now, it's really interesting, too, when you go to this guy, Alexander Acosta. So... Matt Walsh points out, you know, he says, normally the confirmation process to anoint a new secretary of labor isn't especially interesting. We certainly don't learn anything new or scandalous most of the time. But in 2017, the confirmation process of Alexander Acosta was a very notable exception. At the time, the Trump administration was vetting Acosta and they asked him whether anything in his past might pose a problem during his confirmation hearings. That's when Acosta told Trump officials about his handling of the Jeffrey Epstein criminal case back when he was the United States Attorney for the Southern District of Florida in 2007. Acosta recounted that he had agreed to give Jeffrey Epstein the mother of all sweetheart deals. He granted immunity not only to Epstein, but also to any potential co-conspirators, known or unknown. Acosta also hid the existence of his non-prosecution agreement from Epstein's victims in violation of the law. As a result of the deal, the federal investigation to Epstein was shut down. Epstein ultimately pleaded guilty to a state charge of procuring a girl for prostitution under the age of 18. He was out of prison in a few months. All of that was known to the Trump team when they interviewed Acosta. These are the kind of facts that could have killed his nomination to be secretary of labor. But Acosta offered an explanation for his handling of the Epstein case. He told investigators for the Trump administration that he had been directed by U.S. intelligence agencies to let Epstein off the hook. He was told that Epstein belonged to intelligence, that the matter was above his pay grade, and that he needed to leave it alone. When this news broke a couple years later, following Epstein's arrest, Acosta was asked about it. He refused to say it was false, and he gave maybe the most equivocal answer he possibly could have given. This will go down in history as maybe one of the worst attempts to evade an answer that has ever occurred in a press briefing in Washington. Now, um, what I'll do, Matt, is I'll send you the 
the article here. You, if you go down a little bit, there's the, the Matt Walsh has the clip in there, but I'll continue reading while you pull it up. And his point is that it's an admission. There's no other way to interpret what Acosta was doing there. And he's not a particularly good liar. It's a non-denial confirmation that, yes, Jeffrey Epstein was an intelligence asset. He was being used by the United States intelligence agencies, and therefore he couldn't go to prison for amassing an army of child sex slaves. And that's not all the help Epstein and his associates received. On July 6th and 7th of 2019, shortly after Epstein was arrested on new sex assault charges, FBI agents photographed a variety of evidence in Epstein's New York townhouse. They discovered binders with CDs and photographs lining the shelves inside a safe, which they opened with a saw. The agents found lewd photographs of children. They also discovered even more CDs that had handwritten labels on them with the names of two individuals on some of the labels. Now, it's not hard to conclude that this was probably blackmail material. According to the official story, the FBI agents simply photographed all these items, but they didn't take them. Because they didn't have a search warrant. Incredibly, the agents left the property to get a warrant, which somehow took four days to acquire. Now, I have seen enough law and order in my day to know that a judge will give you a warrant on a phone call in a matter of seconds if you need it in something like this. But I also have seen how the United States government operates, which is they do whatever the hell they want, and then they they they... They, you have to fight them later on about it. They, they, you, they, they, these, this is the same government that will take your car, your cash, your house, your guns, anything you have without even charging you with a crime if they, if they want to under civil asset forfeiture. So you're, you're telling me that the United States government suddenly had a conscience and thought that they wouldn't really take this stuff in Epstein's apartment because they didn't have a, a warrant? To, you did this government, this United States government, that if I have $10,000 cash in my trunk, they'll seize it under the idea that I might be a drug dealer and I have to fight to get it back. But they wouldn't take these CDs and binders from Jeffrey Epstein's safe after they cut it open with a saw. And they couldn't get a judge on the phone. There are how many federal judges in this country? Five, six? Hundred? How many federal judges are there in the United States of America, Matt DeSantis? Let's look that one up. You're telling me you couldn't get a federal judge on the phone at that moment? Or in New York State, how many federal judges are in the state of New York? Since this is where this happened, right? You couldn't get a federal judge on the phone to get you a warrant? How many federal judges are in New York State? Let's just look that up. Let's see. Let's ask the Google machine or the um, DuckDuckGo machine. How many federal judges are in the state of New York? Let's see what Siri says. Come on, answer me. Um. There's a lot of judges, I guess, basically, is the point. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a bunch. I'm just looking at the Eastern District of New York, and just, I mean, all the judges here, there's dozens of them. There's dozens of federal judges here. There's dozens of, of magistrate judges. There's dozens, there's there's visiting circuit judges. That's just, just, just in the Eastern District of New York alone. I'm counting at least maybe two dozen federal judges. Southern District of New York has 44 okay. district judges, yeah. And the Eastern District probably has a similar amount. You couldn't get one of those, not a single judge would answer the phone when an FBI agent was calling saying, we've got probable cause here to believe that there might be incriminating evidence about underage children, uh, children here. 
and not a federal, not a single judge would issue an emergency warrant or say, stay right there. I'm getting the warrant down to you right now. In which case, the FBI agents are already in the property. So they're already in the townhouse. They don't have to leave. They just wait for the warrant if that was really the issue. Ah, that little farce, you fool, couldn't pull a Corleone. Fool a Corleone, excuse me. I mean, this is, these people are unbelievable to me. They really are. Oh, can you pot up my my little thingy? You'll befall him if he should get shot. I'm a superstitious man. That's right. I am a superstitious man. And I don't believe you couldn't get a federal judge on the line. Think about this now. Binders with CDs and photographs lining the shelves. Lewd shelves, they found lewd photographs of children. You couldn't get a federal judge to grant you an emergency bench warrant at that moment? An emergency warrant? Search warrant? This is the answer that uh, this guy gave back then when he was uh, asked about the question, Alexander Acosta, at his time as United States attorney in Florida and why he had to leave Jeffrey Epstein off the hook and the question about whether or not he was directed to do so by the United States intelligence communities. Take a listen. Um... I think those rumors um, are misconstruing the acts of the office with respect to that particular paragraph. One more question. Uh, Richard Lardner from the Associated Press. Mr. Secretary, were you ever made aware at any point in your handling of this case if Mr. Epstein was an intelligence asset of some sort? Um, so, 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 so there has there has been reporting to that effect, and and let me say. Um, there's been reporting to a lot of effects in, in, in this case, uh, not just now, but over the years. And, and again, I would, you know, I would hesitate to take this reporting as fact. Um, this was a case that was brought by our office. It was brought based on the facts. And, and I look at that reporting and others. I, I can't address it directly because of our, uh, our, our guidelines. Um, but I can tell you that that a lot of reporting is just going down rabbit holes. A, a, a few, a few, a few more. Now, the FBI agents are standing there in Epstein's apartment. They see evidence of his townhouse. They see evidence now of of children in lewd photographs, which in and of itself is probable cause. I mean, that, that any any cop would tell you that at that moment in time, they have probable cause to take all of that stuff and then ask questions and return it later. If, in fact, it was not the wrong, they had probable cause in that moment to believe that there might be other pictures of children on there and that evidence could go missing. But they also could get a judge on the line and that they would have a warrant within within at least within the hour. But they left. They left Epstein's townhouse. And this is amazing. It took four days to get the warrant. And wouldn't you know, in the time it took to get the warrant, four days. Everything was missing. All the material that the FBI agents had photographed was all missing. The CDs, the binders, all of it. Supposedly, one of Epstein's lawyers later brought the property to the FBI, but of course, there's no way of knowing if the CDs are the same ones that were removed from the safe. You have a chain of, you have a chain of custody issue here, obviously. There's no way of knowing how much evidence was tampered with. Now, as Matt Walsh points out, and I think he's accurate on this point, given this history, there really was no conceivable way we're ever going to learn the truth about exactly what Jeffrey Epstein did and who his associates were. But in 2017, independent journalist Mike Cernovich did his best to get some answers anyway. He tried to force the government's hand. He filed an intervening motion in an existing defamation case concerning Epstein. This motion, which went all the way up to the federal appellate court in New York, 
demanded that the government release information it possessed about Epstein. And the courts ultimately agreed. But just days before the documents were set to come out, coincidentally enough, Epstein and Epstein alone was booked on the new sex assault charges by the federal government. That arrest delayed the release of the documents pending the prosecution. Of course, that prosecution never came because Epstein, quote unquote, committed suicide. The materials in his safe began to disappear. And outside of Ghislaine Maxwell, Epstein's associates evaded scrutiny. The legal documents containing the names of many Epstein associates, as well as transcripts of key witness depositions, remain redacted. Last night, after many years of delays, we finally got a partially unredacted look at some of the documents that Mike Cernovich had been seeking for the better part of a decade. More documents are expected to be unredacted in the coming days. This is just the first batch. But most of the materials we're now allowed to see, as you probably guessed, are not particularly shocking. We all knew, for example, that Bill Clinton had flown in Epstein's private jet and had been photographed with some of Epstein's victims. What's new is unredacted testimony from Johanna Schoberg, one of Epstein's victims. She asked, she was asked, did Jeffrey ever talk to you about Bill Clinton? In response, she testified that he said one time that Clinton likes them young, referring to girls. It's not clear whether this testimony refers to underage girls, nor is it particularly new information. Neither is the fact that, according to one witness, Michael Jackson once visited Epstein's home in Palm Beach. To be sure, there are more alarming accusations in these documents, although for the most part, they aren't new. There's a testimony from Epstein victim Virginia Goofrey that she was directed by Ghislaine Maxwell to have sex with Prince Andrew, for example, as well as hedge fund manager Glenn Dubin. There's also renewed claims in these documents that Harvard law professor Alan Dershowitz had sex with one of Epstein's underage victims, something's, something he, of course, denies. Again, we've heard this before. Going down the list, the billionaire executive chairman of Hyatt Hotels, Thomas Pritzker, is also alleging these documents to have had sex with one of Epstein's victims. Pritzker incidentally, is related to Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, as well as the Harvard board member Penny Pritzker, who played a key role in promoting Claudine Gay to the Harvard presidency. Just in case you thought this week somehow couldn't get any worse for Harvard, there's actually an article from The Nation, which is not a conservative publication. July 24th, 2023, how Jeffrey Epstein captivated Harvard. But I won't get into that for the moment. I'll just point out that there's a link to Harvard, of course, as well. And then there are still many unanswered questions. But, you know, you, you got you to gotta realize in life that when these things happen the way they happen, the, this is on purpose. I mean, this is, this is on purpose. All of this. I told you this yesterday, and I, I said this before, and unlike a lot of people, I wasn't particularly like jazzed up about getting the Epstein list because I didn't really think I was going to learn much new. I, of course, I wanted it to be during the show as we could read it to you, but 600 pages and redacted and BS and all the other nonsense. I think the evidence that would really burn people was in that safe, obviously, because that's what Jeffrey Epstein was going to use to blackmail people, probably on behalf of the United States government, probably because of the CIA. And it was purposely destroyed by our government. And we'll never know. And that's just it. And that's how it goes. And the truth will never come out. And anyone who questions this will be called a conspiracy theorist. But just ask yourself the obvious question. I mean, forget everything else, right? The U.S. attorney says the intelligence community told him to back off. This is above your pay grade. The fact alone that you had FBI agents 
standing in Jeffrey Epstein's townhouse. They had to use a saw to open a safe. But somehow they didn't think they had the legal authority to take the documents and the CDs and the pictures that were in there, even though they had pictures of underage children, which any cop will tell you would give them probable cause. And yet they couldn't get a federal judge on the phone either. And so they left. They left a potential crime scene and didn't secure it. And they left and didn't come back for, until four days later, at which, which point everything was gone. I mean, that alone would be the kind of thing where if you put that in a movie, my father would walk out of the movie. No, he would, because my, I can't watch cop movies with my dad because he turns around all the time and goes, that's not realistic. That would never happen. But this really did happen. And if you put it into a movie, nobody would believe it. If you put it into a book, nobody would believe it. They'd say, this is BS. This couldn't happen. The FBI agents would not leave all that stuff just sitting there. Unless, of course, they had to because somebody walked in, you know, like the smoking man in, in uh, freaking X-Files and told them to get the hell out because this is above their pay grade, too. So <clears throat> wait for the next batch to come out and we'll see. But don't get your hopes up. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. This will go down as one of the greatest cover ups by our intelligence community of all time. This is the best of the Rich Zioli Show. Talk Radio 1210 WPHD. So the new mayor wants to clean up the city. Good for her. The commissioner says he's going to do it. And the mayor says she has his back 1,000%. But can it be done? Considering Larry Krasner is a district attorney and will fight them at every turn. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here today. 855-839-1210. On Twitter, at Rich Zioli as we kick off... A Thursday edition of the show. Great to have you with us today. And always a pleasure to welcome to the show my friend Jennifer Stefano. Jennifer Stefano, of course, is well known throughout the region from being on Fox News with me. But she's also the executive vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation and a columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Hello, Jennifer. Happy New Year. Hello, Mr. Zioli. Happy New Year. How's your mom? Mom's doing great. She's Excellent. doing great. She missed. I was on Fox the other day, and she said, "But where was Rich Zioli?" I said, "I'm sorry to have disappointed you, Mom." Now, see, I was uh, on I Fox on New Year's Day, and and you were not there, so you were. What is I know. this? And Why are they splitting us up? Why are they breaking up the band? What's going on here? They they shouldn't. But I think it's so interesting that my mother's more more upset that I'm on without you. She's fine that you go on alone. It's that when I go on and you're not there, she's. So I think we know who the favorite child is. Right? It's you. <laughs> Very good. I love it. Uh, well, there you, you wrote a piece. Uh, it's an excellent piece. Three things that Mayor Sherelle Parker must do immediately. And let's start with that, right? I mean, I, I, I really liked her inauguration speech. I thought she said the right things. I, I love the executive order she signed, declaring a public safety emergency and saying we've got to crack down on open-air drug markets in Kensington, got to deal with the ATVs, got to deal with retail theft, got to deal with all these things. What does she need to do, though, to make it actually happen? Right. Well, there, there's one underlying problem here. Well, there's two. But the DA, Larry Krasner, doesn't want to prosecute crime. So she can say we have to do something about this, and she can certainly empower the police to do something about it. But what is going to happen, what it has happened, is these 
criminals or alleged are going to be put into the system and Krasner is going to say, I'm not going to prosecute it or I'm going to give them a slap on the wrist. And then it creates this perpetual cycle of degradation of our city. Now, what does that lead to? Of the many ills it leads to, we don't have a police force in the city of Philadelphia. This time last year, uh, the head of the FOP said they were down a thousand to twelve hundred police officers, Rich, and he said about fifteen to twenty were going out every day due to retirement or injury. So, what does that tell you? We have an enormous gap. You could be down by about two thousand officers citywide, right? According to what the FOP policeman said, and if you do some of the math, so. She has to start publicly using that bully pulpit to be, make Larry Krasner what he is, which is public enemy number one. He's the problem. He's why we one of the many reasons we can't get good cops or cops to come into the city, people who want to become police officers. He also won't prosecute the crime. So what, number one, step one, she has got to go after him. She's got to make this public. She's got to start highlighting this problem. Yeah, no, she absolutely does. And that and and I'm glad to see that the governor of Pennsylvania and the Democrat legislature passed a law that really did strip some of Larry Krasner's powers by saying that that if it, a crime happens near SEPTA, he, there'll be a special prosecutor. He was furious about that. But it says a lot that it was a Democrat governor that signed it into law. So maybe if if Sherelle Parker as the mayor does challenge Larry Krasner, she'll at least maybe have a friend in Governor Josh Shapiro and they can actually maybe do something about it. They have to become more vocal. They have to be more vigorous. They cannot allow this to stand because what it, it's demoralizing. If you look at, at black and Hispanic voters and the low, low turnout amongst black and Hispanic voters in the last election, I think you have an enormous problem. Um, they're just not showing up. In, 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 and I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons. A lot of people have a lot of different theories, but certainly the idea that nothing's ever going to change, that guys like Krasner, Soros, George Soros funded guys like Krasner are going to be in there forever. And I think what, what they need to do is make a public spectacle of, of his refusal to prosecute crime. And I think this stuff about SEPTA, it's, it's, it's just a Band-Aid. It, it's not the solution. And, and he's freely elected, but they have to directly address this on a more consistent basis, also to show the police that they see the problem, that they see how demoralizing it is to put your life on the line to catch a criminal, only to put him into the system, and he's back out on the street. Well, now the cop's life's at risk. So the question that a, a police officer would have to ask is, why am I going to risk my life knowing Krasner's not going to do anything about it? I think that's a huge part of the problem um, with the police um, and not being able to recruit new people. Yeah, well, no, no doubt about it. I mean, a lot of people, you, you have to wonder why they'd want to be a cop in the city knowing that the city is, is targeting them. I mean, hopefully that'll change now that there's a new commissioner and a new mayor who says that she wants to support the police. So hopefully that will change because Philadelphia cops are great and they deserve the support of the mayor and they deserve to have a police commissioner who's actually going to look out for them. And that's clearly what, not what Daniel Outlaw was. So, you know, good riddance to that. All right. Now, you also talk about Jennifer Stefano. We, we have to stop businesses from fleeing the city. How do we do that, especially considering that, uh, you know, there's a lot of businesses that are still vacant post-COVID and employees don't want to come in because of crime. How do we keep businesses here in the city of Philadelphia? So I think what, what Sherelle Parker has to recognize is that the city of Philadelphia is just 
hostile to small businesses. You know, they'll cater and, and bend over backwards for corporation. You know, our state gives out corporate welfare. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. But, you know, you can't just rely on the Comcast of the world to take care of things. There's people who want to run a corner bodega. There's, there's, there's the little guy that may one day be, you know, Jeff Bezos or create Amazon or be the next Bill Gates. But, you know, right now he or she's starting a bodega and they're just making it impossible. So we address the one issue, crime. But the other thing is, why do people want to start a business and work in the city, particularly start a business and and not be able to recruit employees because of the city wage tax? It's a huge problem, and it just screams anti-business. And so people go outside of of Philadelphia. And I think this is another two-prong approach, because Governor Shapiro promised to speed up um, the, the reduction of the corporate tax rate. Right now, we're one of the highest corporate tax rates in the world. The, the Republican led they voted to um, roll that back. However, however, it's going to be over a 10-year period. That has got to speed up if we're going to remain competitive as a state and if we're ever going to save our cities. Philadelphia has got to get on par with more competitive cities like in Florida, like the Miamis of the world. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's a real problem. And then, as you pointed out the other day on Twitter, Jennifer Stefano, you have people not just leaving Philadelphia, but leaving Pennsylvania. I mean, U-Haul was out with their list, and, and, and we ranked very high for people leaving the state, but particularly the city. And, and then there's the other problem, too, which is the tourism factor. I was with some friends on New Year's Day. We were, we were hanging out. We were talking about, hey, you know, let's do a big group get-together kind of a thing. And nobody wanted to come into the city. They, they just didn't want to do it. They were like, well, let's just, you know, stay in the burbs. That's a problem. You know, if people don't want to come in and spend their money here, they don't want to catch a show or go out to dinner, go out for drinks or something. That's that's just going to keep adding to to the problem, the economic problem of Philadelphia. And yeah, you know, to your point about the little guy with the bodega, I still remember all those guys with the food trucks and the little pop up, you know, halal food that we used to have outside of the 400 Market Street. We were down there with the old studio. A lot of those guys got shuttered by COVID. I mean, their businesses were destroyed. And they still haven't come back fully. So it's a it's a big problem. And there are regulations that could be rolled back tomorrow. I mean, you could roll back food truck regulations tomorrow. That would do a lot to even just spur that business, if nothing else. That's right. It, it, it's really hostile. And, and and the city council has run, a, run amok. We know this. The Helen Yim city council, the left-wing progressives, it's, it's just, they're ruinous. And then they wonder, you know, they have all these great ideas for social programs. Well, who would stick around to pay for that? Why would people stay to pay for that? And there, there becomes the problem. When you lose your middle class, when you lose your upper middle class, and you start to have a problem. And that goes to my third point, Rich, education. The mayor has an enormous amount of sway over education, not just in Philadelphia, but she can influence what's happening at the state level. I was pleased in her speech, her inaugural speech, where she did not demonize the private sector. She she spoke to charter schools. She spoke to the parochial schools and other private schools serving the city, some of the city's most vulnerable children. And she said, you know, we can't other them. Um, we're all together on this. We have to take responsibility and do what we must on public education, but we have to make sure the other sectors are vibrant too. That's why I think this mayor should appoint um, a school board that is not anti-charter. I think you should appoint a school board that is 
by law, legally, at the, by the state, it is empowered to give scholarships to children want, that want to go elsewhere. She should put a board on that will give children that want to go out there scholarships from the district. And she should be a leading advocate for Lifeline scholarships because, Rich, of the 250,000 kids in the state of Pennsylvania, it would help. Guess where the majority of them reside? Guess where? Philadelphia. In there it is. Look at in me. I what I win. You're the genius. And guess <laughs> what, Rich? The majority of those kids are are low income children. They're children of color. They deserve opportunity too. Jennifer Stefano is my guest, executive vice president of the Commonwealth Foundation and columnist at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, three things Mayor Sherelle Parker must do immediately. Let's come back to crime for a moment, right? Because as you think about the open air drug markets in Kensington, and these videos have gone internationally viral where you you just people have just shown the videos of these open air drug markets and and people walking around like zombies and it looks like something out of a movie but where kensington is you know bordering kensington are a couple of neighborhoods that have been completely regentrified fishtown and northern liberties kensington has not because mayor jim kenny refused to do anything about the open air drug markets because he was a guy that wanted safe injection sites. So, I mean, let's face it, he was he was okay with, with what was going on there. And so that area of Philadelphia has never been able to turn itself around. And the bordering areas of it, of Kensington, they've got new housing going in. There's restaurants going in. There's bars going in. Uh, it's been a transformation. It's possible it could happen, but the first thing you have to do is tackle a drug problem. Has to be number one. And it's not super easy to do considering that we have this opioid crisis and a wide open southern border where you've got this invasion going on. And China brings opioid, you know, brings the fentanyl to Mexico. The drug cartels put it together and then smuggle it up here to places like Philadelphia. And so this problem is going to take a, a lot of work to tackle, but it has to be done. Yeah. Oh, Rich, you are. Completely correct. You know, I've I've gone down and and visited the open air drug market. Um, you know, I'm a columnist. That means I get to give my opinion, but I'm also that requires me to be a reporter too. So I've been visiting Kensington, and it's you know you're taking your life into your hands when you do it. But it, 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 I can tell you one thing that we have to start to have a constructive dialogue about, and this is not partisan, but. When you and you can, people can watch the videos, and I certainly have watched hours of them. But even when you're down there, there people are not in control of themselves, their faculties, or and they clearly cannot make decisions on their own behalf. They are jeopardizing their own lives, and I think there has to start to be discussions about these individuals coming under guardianship. And and I am a believer in individual rights and liberty, but there are clearly sensible moments that we have to be sensible and recognize these people are not capable of making decisions and they have to be put under a guardianship. They're, they're, they're likely we have to think institutional and other resources, but the idea you're just going to let them sit there and continue to destroy themselves is unconscionable. And, and honestly, they, the drug deal life has to be made hard. For the drug dealers, they have to be constantly on the lookout. They have to constantly be concerned. And those things do matter. If you look at both anecdotal evidence and some of the data, enforcement and going after these dealers matters. But again, that only works. It's not just the police. 
It's that there has to be in the criminal justice system consequences. And there's just not right now because of Krasner. And, and again, from prevention, it goes back to education. When you are in a failing school like Bartram High that has zero reading and math proficiency every year, year in and year out, what are the opportunities? What are you going to turn to? I mean, I think this is all, it's one issue, Rich, when you think about it. It all comes back to one thing. So it's, it's the true tragedy of a prosperous nation that we just allow this to continue. It's, it's shameful. It's, it's the end game of progressive ideology. Oh, no, no doubt about it. And uh, Larry Krasner, as you point out, and you've pointed out many times, is a George Soros funded prosecutor. And it needs to be said that George Soros is backing these people because he's a Marxist and Larry Krasner is a Marxist. And these are people that believe criminals are the victims. They are the victims of society's largesse and capitalism. And we can't be prosecuting criminals since it's not their fault. And that mindset and mentality has led to the destruction of beautiful cities across this country, particularly the city of Philadelphia. Jennifer Stefano, always a pleasure, my friend. Keep up the great work and we will have you on again very, very soon. And hopefully we'll be back on Fox News again together because they got it. They got to keep the band together. You know what I'm saying? I know. But Rich Dioli, you're still my mother's favorite child. So (laughs) it doesn't matter as long as you're on Fox News. She's happy. So be blessed. You do magnificent on radio, on TV. You're the best. Uh, You're making me blush, Jennifer. Thank you, my friend. We will talk again soon. Happy New Year. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 